Hello, and welcome to the Strategica podcast from the Hoover Institution, analyzing the intersection of military history and contemporary national security concerns. You can find us online at hoover.org forward slash Strategica. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, and today we take on the topic of our most recent issue of Strategica, the relationship between China and the United States. And joining us now is the author of one of the pieces in this issue, Ian Morris, archaeologist, historian, and the Willard Professor of Classics at Stanford University. Professor Morris, thank you for being with us. Well, thanks for having me on the, uh, the podcast. Now, uh, let's start with some reporting from the field, as it were. In this issue of Strategica, we're, we're looking at the nature of Chinese power, the nature of Chinese ambition, uh, whether the United States has occasion to be concerned. You were in Hong Kong earlier this year. What was your sense there on the ground of the feelings about the U.S.-Chinese relationship? Well, I thought the kind of two things seemed to be really prominent there. One was this tremendous sense of self-confidence, so the, the growth of the economy and uh, that all possibilities are open to China. But I guess the other thing, you know, because Hong Kong has this very peculiar relationship with Beijing, with, with the People's Republic, um, there, there was a, a, a kind of anxiety perhaps about where the future might take them, um, and a sense in Hong Kong, at least, that you know, a strong America is a good thing for uh, for the West Pacific. Now, Ian, there's, there's a tendency sometimes in foreign affairs to apply heuristics in the form of analogies. International relations being such a complicated field, you know, if we can reach for a historical parallel that seems to clarify a situation, it cuts out a lot of the analytical grunt work. And one of the analogies you hear most often in regard to China is Germany in the late 19th century, an ascendant, increasingly prosperous power that seems destined you know, as a matter of culture, of history, of geopolitics to spread its influence in a fashion that is not especially congenial to the existing uh, international order. Do you buy that? Well, I think in some ways it's not a bad analogy. I mean, Edward Lutwak calls it the inevitable analogy and of course, <clears throat> then goes on to uh, point out all kinds of ways in which it's, it's not really inevitable. And I think you know, as historical analogies go, it's quite a good one. But I think sometimes people are a little too hasty about you know, what it is we actually learn from comparing China with Germany. And, um, and one of the big things you see when you look at the run-up to World War I, and, you know, as so many people are doing in this centenary year, is that it didn't have to go that way. And uh, certainly you know, Germany is a rising power. Um, its relationship with Britain is very problematic. Um, and it has a you know, very complicated strategic position in Europe, trapped between the you know, French on the Atlantic Rim and the Russians um, over in the heartland. But there were just a lot of points at which uh, Germany could have handled that relationship differently. And you know, certainly right <clears throat> up till August 1914. There's no guarantee any of this is actually going to lead to war. So I think that's one of the things that we should take away from the modern China, 100 years ago Germany analogy, that there's a lot of ways this can turn out. And you note in the piece at Strategica that you think that there is an analogy that may actually function a little bit better, and it is in fact an American analogy. Explain that. Yes, yes. I think, I mean, uh, the, what strikes me as the most compelling bit of the analogy with Germany is that, you know, 100 years ago, there was a, a kind of a globocop. The British Empire had been the dominant power in the world for, uh, you know, almost 100 years in 1914. Um, 
and to a combination of its alliance systems and its financial power and its, its own military power, it was able to raise the costs of potential violence for other countries. And you really had to think very, very hard about going to war if you didn't think the British were going to approve of what you were doing. And of course, you know, famously, um, during the American Civil War, Abraham Lincoln's biggest nightmare was that the British were going to recognize the Confederacy <clears throat> or potentially even intervene in the war. And then you know, all, all bets are off at that point. Um, and so the U.S., of course, has been functioning in a very similar way, only more so, I think, in the last few decades. And um, the one, one of the things we need to bear in mind, I think, that we're making this analogy between you know, a rising China um, threatening the U.S. global hegemony and a rising Germany threatening the British global hegemony is that 100 years ago, it wasn't just Germany threatening the British hegemony. And in fact, the the real um, economic powerhouse that had appeared on the scene was, of course, the United States. Um, but the U.S. just saw its strategic situation totally differently from the way Germany did, and, and rightly so. That Germany is surrounded by these you know, potentially predatory powers and threats on the continental Europe. The U.S. You know, it's got the Canadians to the north and Mexicans to the south, and fish to the east and west. You know, faces right. no realistic strategic threat at all, um, and the Americans pursue a strategy based on their assessment of that position. Their strategy is that um, there are things they want in the world, there are things they're going to have in the world, but there's no reason why that should lead to conflict with the British Empire. And there's a lot of ways in which um, the US 100 years ago can benefit very much from having the British Empire overseeing the global order. And of course, the, the famous expression of this um, was the, the, the Roos Teddy Roosevelt line about, you know, walk softly but carry a big stick. And that, I think that's av available as a model to the Chinese as China becomes more and more powerful. There's no... No inevitable reason why um, their increasing power should lead to conflict with the United States, um, but it's very possible that it might. And I guess I would say their strategic position is sort of somewhere in between where the U.S. was 100 years ago and where Germany was 100 years ago. And the, um, the appeal to force, I think, is likely to be much more tempting to China than it was to U.S. 100 years ago. But it doesn't have to be as tempting as it was to Germany. Well, that's the, that's the question that I was going to put to you because it seems that if someone were to take issue with the, the parallel uh, with China and the United States, the angle they might play would be to say the following, that you, you cannot reduce the kind of analysis just to the metrics, you know, to the size and reach of the military, to the growth of the economy. But you have to factor in the character of the regime and turn of the century America was a liberal democracy that while it was getting more comfortable venturing overseas was not – fundamentally imperial while modern China is often authoritarian, has a sort of state capitalism that still in some essential respects conceives of economics as a zero-sum game and has a much broader reading of its rightful role in the world. How would you respond to that line of argument? Well, I think that's exactly right. I mean, there's a lot of choices open to all these these rising powers throughout history, and um, they don't have to decide that force is going to solve their problems. And um, the the U.S. Yes, I mean, in addition to having a strategic position that was so different from what Germany had, it also had a system of government where um, you know, going to war involved a lot of people deciding this was the right thing to do. Um, you know, whether more democracy would make China a more peaceful power. Um, that, I think, that's, that's very open to debate. Uh, it, one of the striking things about their rise to, to, to their, their increasing strength so far has been, I would say, how, how well they played their hand. 
I mean, they've avoided getting into conflicts um, since, I mean, 1979, Vietnam was the last really big conflict they had. And I think they learned a lot from these experiences, that they were just not in a position to throw their weight around. And I think the challenge um, for the, the global system, particularly for the United States, is to continue making the Chinese leadership recognize that war is not going to solve any problems. Now, you think that one of the big problems besetting American relations with China, indeed with the entire region, is the ambiguity of our intentions in the region, even in the midst of what we've now come to call the the pivot with the U.S. supposedly taking up an expanded role in the Asia-Pacific. Um, explain what we're doing, what we're doing wrong there. I think one of the big problems has been that the U.S. has been sending quite mixed signals around the world. And um, also, being a strategist and diplomat today, it's a much bigger job than it was, say, a couple of thousand years ago, back in the Roman Empire. And nowadays, everything is connected to everything else. And so the way we behave in one part of the world is read and interpreted by people in completely different parts of the world. And um, my sense uh, from you know, a certain amount of traveling and talking to people in the West Pacific region, Region, is that you know, they're very worried about the way the United States has been handling um, some of its international relations. And uh, I, mean, I haven't spoken to anybody since the troubles started in Ukraine, but I can imagine people reacting to this by saying, well, um, the U.S. simply isn't there for its allies when they need it. And this, I think this is, the, to me, this is the big worry, that the, the only way to maintain a stable um, situation, I would say, in the West Pacific as the balance of power changes, is through maintaining chains of allies who can be pretty confident what's going to happen. You know, if China does X, we can do Y because we know the United States is going to do Z. And I think the minute you start saying, well, will the U.S. really do Z? Can we rely on them? then it gets tempting to just make the best deal you can with China while you still can. Okay, so final question. Take me down sort of each fork in that road, which is to say short term, five or ten years down the line. If the U.S. does precisely what you've advocated there and, and becomes involved and engaged in a way that doesn't leave any ambiguity in our allies' minds about our role in the region or alternately if we stay on the path it seems that we're on right now where – Nobody in the region feels that we're especially dependable. We might be, but they've got to they've got to play the margins there. Um, what in those two scenarios? What does the region and specifically China look like in your judgment five or ten years down the road? Well, I guess I'll be very surprised if we see uh, a major military conflict in the West Pacific in the the short term, in the, the five or ten, even 20-year term. I think at the moment, um, the, the gap in military power between the U.S. and everybody else is just, just so enormous that there'd have to be some <clears throat> monumental series of miscalculations uh, for, for things to turn violent. I think um, – 30 or 40 years down the road. The situation might be very, very different, though. If current trends continue, uh, Chinese military spending and their you know, determination to prove their forces and uh, sort of static or even declining levels of U.S. investment in the military, then the, I think the balance 30 or 40 years out will have changed to the point where um, there may well be occasions, you know, as there were with the Germans back 100 years ago, where people start to say, you know, we've got this terrible situation here that um, we We've got some strategically vital interest that we feel is being threatened, and we don't want to use force. Um, we are far from certain that force is going to succeed, but it may be the least bad of the options facing us, and so we're going to have to take a chance on it. 
I think in the shorter term, that is just I think, really unlikely to happen uh, unless people make some incredibly foolish miscalculation. Was the, the one that people often talk about is the Chinese deciding, say, to, to seize the Senkaku Islands or the Spratlys or some other you know, little piece of rock in the middle of nowhere, basically, uh, on the, the hope that the U.S. response to this is going to be so weak that our allies in the West Pacific will start shifting over uh, into Beijing's orbit. And um, that, again, I think people are too smart to do that. But um, you know, historians have been constantly surprised by how not smart people can be, uh, like how bad our decisions can be when we're under a lot of pressure. And you know, again, this um, disturbing analogy with 1914, pretty much nobody thought the assassination in 1914 was going to lead to a major war. You know, all of Europe's statesmen go away fly fishing and they go on vacation in July and August and come back and find the continent about to go to war. So I mean, I would say the most likely scenario in the short run, if we continue on the, the present course, is going to be mounting tensions, um, you know, more episodes uh, like the ones we've seen around the Senkakus, but not actual conflicts. But a little further out, I think that might change. All right. Our guest has been Ian Morris, the Willard Professor of Classics at Stanford University. You can read his piece and those of other members of Hoover's Military History Working Group by visiting Strategica at hoover.org forward slash strategica. That's S-T-R-A-T-E-G-I-K-A. Professor Morris, thank you for joining us. Well, thanks very much for having me on. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution. Thank you for listening.